This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast, and today we are welcoming Dr. Colleen Reichman. Dr. Colleen is a licensed clinical psychologist who practices in Philadelphia. She specializes in working with eating disorders and body image issues, and today is giving us an introduction into intuitive eating. In our conversation today, we talk about how uncomfortable it can feel to see your weight climb on the scale while pregnant, and also how we process and deal with our body looking so different postpartum. We also explore the idea of health at every size and understanding what thin privilege looks like. So many amazing tidbits in this interview, but before we get to it, I just want to share a review with you guys. Today's review comes from Orca Runner, and the title is Essential Listening. This podcast is so relevant and full of helpful information and insight. If you are a mom or mom-to-be, start listening now. The last episode about adjustment order or postpartum stress syndrome was amazing, and they offered suggestions that are really helping me look at things differently, at myself differently. Very thankful for this podcast. Thank you so much for this review. It's always so amazing to hear your feedback because as we talk right now, I'm sitting in a room by myself, staring at screens, and I don't get to interact with you guys every day. So when I get this feedback of knowing that this project and this resource is making an impact, I appreciate it so much. I love to know your thoughts and I love your feedback. So thank you for this review and let's dive on into this interview. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Colleen, thank you so much for joining the podcast today. I have been awaiting this episode with great anticipation and jotting down all of my questions as I've been thinking about them leading up to our time together. So thank you for taking the time to be with us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I love to open the floor at first with a little bit of who you are, how you came into this field. So you specialize in working with eating disorder recovery, um, health at every size, and intuitive eating expert, all of these things. How did you find your way into that field? Sure. Well, I, um, let's see, the answer is always a little convoluted um, because I didn't actually intend to become a psychologist who specialized in eating disorders. I actually was thinking to myself, I will never do that in graduate school. But essentially, I had my own history of a struggle, a decade-long struggle with an eating disorder um, that started in high school and then progressed throughout college. So by the time I I kind of achieved a fragile sense of recovery when I started graduate school and wanted to be um, somebody who did research and didn't work one-on-one with people who had eating disorders. And then um, I guess just as I've you know, started to feel better and get stronger in recovery. I agreed to start working with college students who had negative body image. And then from there, I think there was just a natural progression to working with clients who had eating disorders. And as soon as I did that, it felt very fluid and um, it just felt like it fit. Like I really felt like I had like mm-hmm. a sensitivity chip and I could click in with, with those clients. So I just... Um, I took off from there and did my postdoctoral fellowship, my predoctoral internship at inpatient eating disorders units, and then um, 
now I kind of branched off to start my private practice that I almost exclusively see people with eating disorders. It's so interesting to me how the things we always vow to ourselves, like, I will never do this. You know, I've had moments like that as well. <laughs> I will never work with like couples and like, I don't know, whatever it is from our wounds that we've had and things growing up in our own experience that like inevitably we become mm-hmm. the most passionate about because it's such a big need that people like we need to show up for, you know, for other people. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And when you have personal experience, I'm learning this in the maternal mental health field as well, because I've been open that I struggled with some pretty significant postpartum depression after my third boy was born. And Mm -hmm. um, the more I connect with maternal mental health professionals, the more I'm learning that they are two survivors, like they are also survivors of maternal mental health. And that's what has ignited a passion and a fire in them to support other women, right? So it's interesting that that passion comes from often our own struggles or, or like a place in our own life. So thank you for sharing that. That's really, that's really valuable. Yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine in pregnancy and in postpartum, um, anyone who has struggled with disordered eating or body image or anyone in general really who's lived in diet culture who is very aware that like thin is the ideal struggles with weight gain during pregnancy, struggles with body image, struggles postpartum to want to get their body back, right? Mm -hmm. So I have so many questions. <laughs> I have so many questions because I know that one of the the ways, um, or I, I understand, I guess that is intuitive eating is an approach to food that is very psychologically healing for people. Mm-hmm. W- would yes. you say? So. Can you talk a little bit about what intuitive eating is for those, first of all, in the audience who may not be familiar, and then we can kind of branch into questions from there. Sure. Um, it's a, you know, it is a big concept, and the book, Intuitive Eating, really lays it out probably much better than I ever could um, because there's all these different principles, but essentially, it's it's a rejection of the diet mentality and eating, turning towards just more listening to your body. So eating when you're hungry and stopping when you're full, that's kind of the ultimate goal. Um, And eating what your body's telling you that it wants. And then the idea is because I've Mm -hmm. seen it turned into the intuitive eating diet. I put that in quotes because people, it kind of just turns into the hunger and fullness diet. Like, well, if I'm not doing that perfectly, if I ate past fullness, then um, people begin to feel really guilty and yeah, it just escalates into another diet mentality. So I always say sometimes intuitive eating, I know this sounds odd, but sometimes it is eating like, you know, way past fullness. Sometimes it is eating when you're not hungry. Sometimes it's, um, ordering something at a restaurant that you don't necessarily, you're not craving, but there's just nothing else. You're not, you know, very hungry and you want to kind of socialize with friends. So it's this very flexible approach to food that completely rejects the Mm -hmm. guilt and moralistic associations that diets kind of tack on to food. Right. And it's so like learning your fullness cues can be a part of it. Um, like rejecting food rules or diet rules, um, rejecting things like healthy versus unhealthy food, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, all food is sort of equal in the sense that food has no moral value, these types of ideas around food. Right. Right. So when someone is postpartum and they are up in weight, because they have just gained weight and had a baby and gone through these body changes. How can somebody embrace or is there room to embrace intuitive eating and to also want to lose weight? Um, I, I think that would be really difficult to, I, I've just found I've never seen it mm-hmm. be successful because um, the pursuit intentional weight loss is really kind of antithetical to intuitive eating because it the idea is it should be a weight mm-hmm. neutral approach. Um, so I would say mm-hmm. that 
uh, moms who are postpartum and struggling with, you know, the body changes and wanting to quote unquote, get their pre-baby body back. The, the ideal would be to, um, work to kind of neutralize the body changes if possible, or just kind of understand that our bodies are meant to change. I know society doesn't act like this, but they're meant to change during pregnancy and they're not meant to be the same as they were before. Mm -hmm. And that um, any weight loss that occurs, if it's meant to occur and you're kind of meant to go back to whatever, if it will happen without you controlling your diet in any strict way. So trusting that mm. and then also mm -hmm. um, placing a higher emphasis on meeting your energy needs at that time than anything to do with, you know, losing any weight or, or um, manipulating your food intake because that's a tough time. Mm -hmm. And it seems like energy needs and listening to cravings and really honoring your body would be so important. That's really interesting because I have a lot of clients and people, even friends and people on Instagram who are like two and three weeks postpartum and feel a strong need to like snap back or bounce back to their pre-baby body, right? Right. To the point that they're like, oh, I'm going to start dieting or I've got to get these last XYZ pounds off, you know? Um, and they are like in the of newborn life. Right. I love intuitive eating for this purpose because you get to eat intuitively the things that you feel like your body needs without shame or without guilt and that you're really compassionate with yourself. It takes all like the stress and the obsessing out of mm -hmm. food, I find. Yeah, that's the... Uh... I think the whole upside of it is that it just makes – it turns it back into a more joyful, flexible relationship with food. Yeah, yeah. Which seems like it would be so necessary for – I can't think of a time when it – I mean, I guess it's just necessary all throughout life, but during pregnancy and then – postpartum, it seems like it should be the epitome of what we consider important. And I just am always appalled by all the pressure on women's bodies, pregnancy, and then after pregnancy, there's just, I can't believe that that is the, the thing that we're all made to be like so consumed with when there's these huge other like important things that have happened. And that I, I just, it's, it does make me really sad. When I think about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I was sitting in a doctor's office this morning for um, to get a prescription for massage therapy. It's so silly, but my benefits and insurance won't cover it unless I get okay. a prescription for it. So I'm there and there is a poster on the wall that says, if you're struggling with your weight, and there's like bare walls except for this one single poster. And it says, if you're struggling with your weight then ask your doctor about this weight control medication that when paired with a reduced calorie diet can help you to like get your weight in control, essentially. And I almost took a picture of it because I'm just like, this is just silly. And when I talk with a lot of moms about body image and um, self-esteem and all these different things, the medical system or their doctors or like being pregnant and having to weigh in and talk about their mm -hmm. weight so openly ongoing throughout their nine, you know, nine and a half months of being pregnant is like a really significant right. challenge. It's a really big trigger for people. Um, so can we explore that a little bit and how someone might cope with when they are seeing like numbers go up on the scale or when they are constantly being um, kind of ridiculed by their doctors, even like, oh, you are, you fit in this BMI, mm -hmm. so you should only be this. And, you know, these types of conversations. Yeah. And it, it's very close to home because I'm, I'm actually 28 weeks pregnant and I've heard before getting pregnant about all the focus on weight but I feel like until you're in it and you, there's just no getting around because prior to getting pregnant, I declined getting weighed at the doctor's office since being recovered. Cause I was like, what do you need that number for? Right. And, but now I don't, 
I don't really have, at least my doctor, I didn't have the option for that. It's just not considered safe to not monitor weight. Um, so it's been a real trip mm-hmm. having to have it such a focus on that and, and such a focus on the quote unquote right amount of weight mm-hmm. to gain, which is based on BMI, which BMI is like a really crappy measure of anything. Um, Can you break that down for us? Do you have a little bit of information about BMI and why it's helpful or unhelpful? Or Yeah, it was actually meant to be um, a measurement for population research, I think, among men in, oh, I'm probably getting this wrong, but like, you know, a hundred years ago when they were doing some arbitrary research study, BMI was just sort of a statistic that they used to measure the population. And it was never intended to be used across the board as any type of measure of any type of indicator of health. And somehow over mm. the years, and a lot of the doctors, more the MDs that I talk to will say, well, we don't have any other alternatives to measure health. It's the main easiest thing, but we know it's not great um, mm-hmm. because it just doesn't take mm-hmm. so many things into account. It doesn't take bone density into account. It doesn't take muscle mass. And it's just, there are so many people that fall into the quote unquote overweight and obese BMI categories that their blood tests, uh, you know, everything is in the healthy range and they're fine, but they're labeled as not being healthy because of this very arbitrary system. Um, and it's, it's like mind blowing that we're still using it. I, I can't believe with everything we know that it's still in. Yeah. I just, I could go on an angry rant for an hour about BMI. <laughs> well, and like the medical system and and doctors' approach to weight in general is really challenging because, like, according to research, and I don't know the research on you know weight loss and healthy weight and like all of that to control disease and whatever is empowering these conversations in terms of like the medical field, but. What I'm learning from different experts like yourself is like health at every size. Can you break that down? Because doctors equate like obesity or however they're ter- like viewing it, you know, mm-hmm. um, being overweight, high BMI, whatever it is, as being inherently unhealthy. Right. Right. So can you break down that whole health at every size idea for us? Sure. Health at every size is basically the counter argument to the obesity epidemic, I would say. And it's, um, it's not saying it's, you know, that every single body is healthy at every single size, but it is saying that every single body deserves a weight neutral approach to healthcare and more of a weight neutral approach to living um, and health in general. And it's also saying that there is a much, much broader range of what's quote unquote healthy in terms of our weight than what the medical model and BMI has told us for the past however many decades, um, that that's actually a really incorrect um, way of describing healthy and that there's a lot of um, what's called paradoxical obesity literature that suggests that living in the, I hate using these terms because I don't even like the term overweight or obese, but that being in those categories Mm. is very protective in terms of living longer. And the most dangerous category to be in is underweight. Um, But we just never, Mm. you know, that's not, you wouldn't know that by talking to, and I don't think doctors are malicious or trying to harm us. I think that this is the medical model right now is the obesity epidemic model. And that's what doctors are being trained in. So um, that's the information that's trickling down to all of us. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's so much fear of fatness, um, you know, with, with everybody. Right. Because like, like fat phobia is a real legitimate issue that lends itself then to like thin privilege. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Um, and that gets reinforced every day for people. So what is thin privilege for those who don't really aren't familiar with these terms and these concepts? So thin privilege is basically a term that's acknowledging um, the systemic oppression that fat folks, and I I use the term fat um, in a neutral way because there's just a huge movement to um, take the the power back from that word and make it more neutral, like thin. So Mm -hmm. 
So thin privilege is basically acknowledging the systemic oppression in our society that fat folks face and acknowledging that um, if you are a smaller bodied individual, you are given societal privilege um, in all these ways, a lot of which are more subconscious we wouldn't even recognize on a day-to-day basis. And it's not saying that you love your body. It's not saying that you you know, have never struggled with body image or you don't deserve to struggle with body image. It's just saying, you know, regardless of the struggle, if you're living in a smaller body, you are afforded various privileges on a daily basis that somebody in a fat body is not afforded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I see this all the time in so many ways. I see this in the compliments of, oh my goodness, you look so good. You lost weight that reinforce that whole idea. I see this in, um, particularly in like body positive movements and, and maybe even more specifically with moms, but maybe not, um, of like showing, um, postpartum bellies that have stretch marks and, and showing cellulite and showing bodies that are imperfect. right? Right. Um, the, the person who is of an average or like straight size that, you know, is brave enough, quote unquote, to reveal the imperfections of their body has like five or 600,000 Instagram followers versus the, um, bigger bodied person who is also showing their postpartum body and what it looks like for them. And they're getting like trolled and shamed about how dare they show up in this space. Right. Absolutely. So the messaging to to moms and like when when maybe you've been kind of like weight neutral or just like not losing, not gaining, and maybe not struggling um, in like a clinical way with um, like an actual eating, like disordered eating, although I guess you could argue potentially dieting is disordered eating depending on how it's used, right? But um, but you know, relatively like not on their radar that much until they become pregnant and then they start to gain weight and their body really starts to change. And then they start to feel all of these, these pressures and have to wrestle with their, um, identity or their like body image in a way that maybe they haven't before, or maybe they have, I don't know. So yeah. So when it comes to to working with people who struggle with body image, maybe intuitive eating is just a piece of it. But what are some of the the things that you do with clients or that you recommend in terms of um, getting through those those challenging times? Um, is that specific to people who are pregnant or postpartum or just in general? Like what is – I think in general. Like I think that um, the, the, the skills or the approach may, may overlap. Um, yeah, I yeah. found – I mean body positivity – has kind of become, like you were saying, taken over by smaller bodied people. It was started, there was a fat positivity movement that was sort of started body positivity. Um, So, and it was way more radical and way more about showcasing the most marginalized bodies. But um, the body positivity as we see it on Instagram now is way more about um, thin bodies and celebrating those bodies and those people talking about bending over and having like a one belly roll and learning to accept it, which there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I just think I've seen so many of those images and always think to myself, well, what about how, you know, how painful must that be for somebody who doesn't have to bend over to have a belly roll to see this person saying how difficult it has been to accept this one role um, that happens when you crunch over. It's basically saying like to that person, the thin person saying, you're my biggest fear is living in your body and I'm trying to get through it. So I think that, mm. in my opinion, mm-hmm. the current body positivity movement isn't so helpful when it comes to healing anyone's body image. Um, I've found that striving mm-hmm. for a body-neutral approach seems to be what resonates with most people. And I think the biggest part of that is depedestalizing body image, if that makes sense. So kind of um, working to not have your body be your masterpiece, but embracing, I think it was Glennon Doyle who said that your body is, is the paintbrush that you use to create your masterpiece, which is your life. So 
with that in mind, um, kind of working to understand, like, it doesn't really matter if I have a dinged up paintbrush or a short one or one with stretch marks all over it. I'm living my life in it and I'm using it to create my masterpiece. And the masterpiece is what's important. Um, so learning to, and I always work with people on what I call an 88 year old mm-hmm. perspective. So kind of thinking back to when you're 88 or thinking ahead to when you're 88, so what do you want to look back and think about, you know, what did you spend the majority of your time doing? Do you want to look back? Do you think you'll want to look back and think, you know, I spent a lot of time at the gym and I was very controlled with what I ate and I kept my weight in this such and such range. Or might you want to think more about, I actually like kind of gave up this idea of having there, Mm -hmm. you know, be a perfect weight range and lived my life to the fullest and socialized with friends. And I ate the, you know, the cupcake and I savored the new food. Um, I tried things, you know, at parties and I just, I had late night pizza with my partner and it kind of like, would you want to look back and see a life lived in color when it comes to food? And just getting around in your body or one that's very black and white, because that's what diet culture mm-hmm. is. It's these black and white rules that keep us in these kind of like small lives, if that makes sense. Want to get smarter about your health, but feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction? We hear a lot about gut health, microbiomes, and other nutrition topics, but taking the time to research these is exhausting. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. The Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast makes it so much easier to get the information you need. With the help of world-leading scientists, the podcast gives you research-based information so you can make informed choices for yourself without pressure and guilt. People are loving Zoe Science and Nutrition. Listener Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others accessing quality information about their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Mealtime with kids can be stressful. But with Factors Delicious ready-to-eat meals, it can be a lot easier. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. No worrying about ingredients and nutrition, no prep, no mess, and no cooking while wrangling toddlers. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Factor can even be tailored to your schedule. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Take the stress out of meals with Factor. Head to factormeals.com slash momwell50 and use code momwell50 to get 50% off your first box. One of the most relentless mental loads is being the juggler of medical appointments. Researching doctors, reading reviews, making phone calls to book appointments, it's a lot of stress when you're already juggling so much invisible labor. That's what makes ZocDoc great for moms. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of highly rated in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. ZocDoc has doctors of all specialties, including therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists with verified patient reviews so you can make sure they check all your boxes. You can find mental health providers who offer in-person appointments, virtual consults, or both, whatever works for you. The typical wait time to see a mental health provider booked on ZocDoc is just four days. Sometimes you can even book same-day appointments. Make juggling appointments easier with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com momwell and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated therapist, psychiatrist, or psychologist today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash momwell. ZocDoc.com slash momwell.
So I am postpartum, but I'm like a year and a bit postpartum. And my husband and I keep having these conversations because I I discovered intuitive eating mm-hmm. a few months ago, maybe. And I've been really trying to like understand and wrap my mind around it. Um, as someone who's postpartum, just coming out of having three kids back to back pregnant and breastfeeding mm-hmm. for the past right. four years, and my body really looks quite different than it did leading into that. Right. But I'm also a psychotherapist and I like to think that like, like I'm pretty, I'm pretty open-minded about myself. I can be perfectionist and hard on myself hundred percent, but, um, there's this whole like, okay, after (laughs) being pregnant and after having this little, you know, human take up occupancy in your womb that you want to get back to living life kind of not like you were before being pregnant, like ha- that it has to look mm-hmm. the exact same, but that like you want to get your body back in the sense of like you want some of your autonomy and your own self back. So we've had this conversation because now we are discovering intuitive eating and it has freed up the stress and like obsession about about food and like, are we going to do keto? Are we going to do paleo? Are we going to do like, what are we going to do to get this all in order? Um, so it has definitely helped alleviate the stress, but it's like, we also were having this conversation last night in preparation for this interview, but like, what if our, what if we don't feel like we're at our like goal or we still feel like we want to be and feel healthier within our own body? And maybe that's not necessarily about Mm -hmm. like a number on a scale, but it might just be more about like how our body feels when we're moving around with our kids, for example, right? Or how our body feels if we're like running and playing sports and doing things and we just feel heavier or we just feel slow or we just feel these different things within our body that we're like not super content with. Um, so how how does that, how do you work with that, I guess, is is it, it feels like a like a struggle between yeah i think it's that um is what makes intuitive eating and um you know working on body image and and things like that a hard sell most of the time i think that's mm. why it's more of a it's kind of swimming upstream if you're doing it and if you're sort of preaching it because the answer to those questions is the really hard answer. It's like, it's not the one that people want to hear, but it's kind of, it's, um, it's like if your body, like all the biology tells us and all of the, the history of us evolving as a species tells us that if our body is meant to be at a certain weight, that if we're being kind to it and moving for joy and eating, um, until safety and, you know, kind of eating like all the things that it will fall into whatever is healthy for it. So whatever, I think the Mm. hard thing is we're meant to gain weight as we get older. Um, Like there's just a slew of documented hormonal metabolic changes. And so I think that a lot of it comes down to us believing that we kind of have to sort of make our bodies look and feel like the culture tells us they should versus what our bodies actually want to, which is a lot of our bodies do want. I mean, some people it's, it's very different, but a lot of people's bodies do want to hold on to more weight after giving birth um, or just, yeah, as we age or like even just like going from high school to college, there's all the pressure on the freshman 15. And there's a lot of research to suggest that we are, our bodies want that. Like we don't want to be the same weight that we were in high school for our whole lives. Um, so I think it comes mm-hmm. down to if it's like getting in the way, if dieting feels like kind of life sucking, like it can for a lot of us and just controlling weight or trying really hard to manipulate what your body looks like, then working towards understanding that I guess taking, accepting your body wherever it is while being kind to it and pursuing health. If that is what you, if health is a priority, then if, you know, of course, pursuing health, um, in a, in a weight neutral approach is probably the only path in my opinion to long-term peace. 
because we can, I mean, there's so much research that we, Hmm. when we do lose weight, even the people that are successful when it comes to like getting your pre-baby body back or just losing weight in general, 95% of people gain it back. And then two thirds of those people gain back more. So it's kind of like, it's taking a deep breath and getting off the hamster wheel, which is, in my opinion, so much harder short term than staying mm-hmm. on it, but the only way towards lasting peace, I think. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you can, like, if you value health, and again, that's a whole, I feel like this is such a massive conversation. Like each one of these little things could be <laughs> an episode in themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Like the concept of of health and like healthy food versus unhealthy food. And, and, and I understand it. it is a, a ginormous topic. So um, we're not going to be able to get into all of those things, but it's interesting that you said, like, if you value health, you can pursue it in a weight neutral way. Right. And is that by like, is that by like healthy relationship with movement and things like that? Yeah. And I also think the caveat to this is understanding that we are all raised in this culture. So we've all been swimming in weight loss and diet culture soup since day zero. So I think when you try to change mindset to pursue health in a weight neutral way, also understanding that you're going to have to have a lot of self-compassion for messing up and kind of just like defaulting back to like, Mm. well, weight loss must be best. And I think everybody, I mean, even I can still like make that mistake in my thinking at times. And I, I think everybody, it's kind of an ongoing process for the rest of our lives, in my opinion, to unlearn messages that have been woven in since, um, really a really young age. I mean, there's research that shows that the majority of kids between when polled between like, I think it was five and 10 years old would rather have their parent die of cancer than they themselves get fat. So it's like these messages have, wow. Yeah. It's scary. And they're, they get in and they've been in there for years and years. So if you're all of a sudden trying to be weight neutral, it's just like a, just understand and have so much compassion for the fact that you'll fall down and get back up and fall down again. And it's all allowed and it's all okay. Um, as long Mm -hmm. as you're still like continuously just being aware and continuing to strive towards neutrality when it comes to weight. And I think health can definitely be pursued in things like moving for joy, which is, because movement, there is so much research that says that movement is great for um, health outcomes in a lot of ways, but compensatory, rigid, like punishing movement probably isn't psychologically going to be beneficial. So thinking to kind of like, well, what ways did I move my body as a kid? And what was actually fun? Like, what would I look, what would I look forward to mm-hmm. rather than dread? And then going with that. Right. Yeah, I've been trying to rediscover that more as well, like after learning about this. Before it was like you go to boot camp and it's like you didn't have a good workout until you're like throwing up or like, you know, ready to pass out. Mm-hmm. Where now it's like, how do I go for a walk and enjoy the fall leaves in Ontario, you know, right now with the kids? Um, how right. do we get out and get moving and like have it be a joint, like, m- mutually beneficial, enjoyable experience for us, like as a family and things like that, just looking at it from an entirely different lens, right? Right. And I think it's such great modeling too for kids because the uh, I see people, you know, high school, college age, my clients are moving into adulthood. So I see people once they've been kind of damaged by their parents' messages about exercise, like you must run or the intense exercise is the always the best. And so modeling a totally different way and starting that young, that like all movement is good movement um, as long as you're enjoying it and it feels good for you and you're stopping when your body says stop. I think that's um, like the fact that maybe more people are going to be embracing that moving forward means the next generation will have a a different shot than maybe we had in terms of body Mm -hmm. acceptance and body kindness. Yeah. I kind of, I chuckle to myself a little bit when we're talking about like all movement being good movement <laughs> because I've got three boys and I'm like, Lord, help me. <laughs> There's so much movement all the time that I'm like, just 
dial it down. This, this is just too much. <laughs> like climbing and jumping off the bookshelf. And I'm like, can we just, can we just chill? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't uh, imagine. My sister-in-law is about <laughs> to have her third boy. Oh yeah. She's like, it's going to be crazy. <laughs> it is like, it is a madhouse all the time. It is crazy. Like, yeah, I love it. And it's nuts all at the same time. Um, right. This is a little bit more of a clinical question that I that comes up in my mind when I think about how I would work with clients in this way. Like, um, so obviously when it comes to like mood disorders, let's say, or someone who suffers with depressive episodes or even anxious episodes, postpartum, I talk a lot about postpartum depression and anxiety and how that has an effect on our appetite, um, often restricting food or, um, I don't know if it's more commonly, but also commonly, um, binging food or using food in a, in a way that is kind of like a coping strategy, I guess, mm-hmm. um, or just having a, like an, an endless appetite, like feeling like needing to eat all the time. And I can see how intuitive eating may be really helpful with clients who maybe are more prone to restricting. Um, how, how do you work with clients or how does it work for, for those who feel like they just want to eat often? So the the thing is, is most of the time, I would say 99% of the time, the people who are restricting and the people who are quote unquote overeating, it's all actually coming from the restrictive mentality. So it's it's kind of a similar path to healing in that a lot most of the time, again, 99% of the time, if people are eating continuously throughout the day or feeling like they're out of control with eating or eating, um, feeling out of control and eating certain foods, that type of thing, um, or eating, you know, to self-soothe all the time, that it's, it's most of the time we can trace it back to having a really restrictive mentality about food. So, because just physically restricting, that's not the only path to kind of binging. If you are mentally restricting, which is like beating yourself up or telling you some foods are off limits or just that you're a bad person for eating like X, Y, and Z or eating too much, it actually has the exact same physiological effects on our body as physically restricting, which is our minds go to like, well, then let me eat more. Like, let me eat as much as I can. This person's in a famine, obviously, because um, all these like weird thoughts about food. So I think targeting that restrictive mentality is healing for both restriction and um, overeating or eating like continuously throughout the day or just eating um, maybe only one type of food and feeling out of control and doing so. That's really, really interesting. I haven't seen it from that perspective before, but that you don't actually need to be physically restricting your food. But if you're telling yourself, you know, you can't have carbs, but all you're doing is eating carbs all the time, like that restrictive voice in your head that's like putting yourself down for having carbs is like a form of restriction. Yes. Yeah. It's just the food police and it's not fair, but mentally it has the same effect as if you actually were avoiding carbs and um, to really, yeah, to heal and just get to the more intuitive place. It, it really is a lot of that psychological work of like challenging the food police and um, questioning those restrictive thoughts and kind of working to let go of like carbs are bad or sugar is bad. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's really, really interesting. And I, like I see dietitians who work in this space, like as intuitive eating dietitians, and I'm like, oh my goodness, they need to have like therapy <laughs> training because like so much of this intuitive eating approach oh, yes. is psychological, right? Like it's so yes. psychological. Um, yeah, it's very, very little about what to actually eat and much more about like your relationship with food and how you approach food and what you were taught about food Absolutely. and like these types of things. Um, one of the principles of of intuitive eating is like, I believe if I get it right here, is like honoring your body with nutrition or nutrition. Oh, gen- gentle or something gentle nutrition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how 
how do we do that without food rules? Like how, cause like, let's be honest, I'm never really going to crave like broccoli or like, you know, sometimes I crave salad and sometimes I crave like things that feel lighter in my tummy and stuff like that. Like intuitively I want that, but, um, yeah. How do you, how do you do that? Or how do you incorporate these foods without doing it in like a food rules type of way? Well, I think it's definitely the last principle in the intuitive eating book to tackle. And it's there for a reason because it's the hardest, I think, for us to work through and to get to, mm. which is um, eating what we want and honoring cravings and stopping when we're full and, and all that. But also understanding that some foods make our bodies feel better and some foods don't. And so I think it's like incredibly difficult to to capture that. I think personally, I think gentle nutrition is more of like lifelong work um, and lifelong unlearning because the thing is you would crave broccoli. Like from a biological standpoint, you would crave these things um, at some point if it was super restricted from you and um, society, there were like mass subconscious and societal messages that broccoli was like so bad because psychologically humans are like, if you think of, um, I always relate it to like, I don't know if you ever had like a romance in like college or anything that wasn't allowed. Um but it becomes very like provocative to us mm. when things are off limits and not allowed. So we we would crave things that are quote unquote traditionally healthy should they if they were to ever be societally deemed as unhealthy. And and I always even with like pregnancy I've seen this um, because as soon like I've I was told I'm not supposed to eat. Um, deli meat that's like a thing and I cannot tell you how much I want mm -hmm. a turkey mm -hmm. sandwich this whole time and I'm not someone I don't even <laughs> like that it that much like they're not appealing when I'm not pregnant but I swear I'm positive it's because I've been told that I can't have one that I think about it probably daily like <laughs> a right. lot so I think that Mm -hmm. understanding that and then using like <laughs> that idea to question the restrictive mentality is helpful when it comes to gentle nutrition. And also if you really are like trying to listen to your body in a non-obsessive way, your body will over time lead you to choose the things that feel better um, more often. And you will choose things that make your body feel like crap sometimes as well, mindfully, if that makes sense. Like if you're yeah, like mm -hmm. if you're doing gentle nutrition, mm -hmm. that involves understanding yeah, totally. like sometimes I'm going to – like I get migraines, for example, sometimes, and they, you know, are often triggered by jolts in blood sugar. And sometimes I, I, I'm going to have like the – whatever, you know, candy it is on an empty stomach, knowing that there's a potential for the migraine because I made that choice. That was the best choice for me in the moment, and it's the way to lead a non-obsessive life is to make some choices that – don't make our bodies feel good. You, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I feel like it's so, it's so complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I know this it, it's like, <laughs> uh, intuitive eating. The more I learn, the more I'm like, whoa, I have so many questions, you know, and I really just need to order all the books and stuff because eventually um, in my work with moms, I'd love to be able to incorporate some of the principles. But right now I'm very much in a place of like, I just have to learn this whole approach and deal with my own, um, mm -hmm. you know, diet culture mentality that's just kind of ingrained, right? So I feel like I have my own work to do in understanding the principles and 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 my own work just personally before I'm able to incorporate it with clients. But um, one of the things, like, so uh, one thing that commonly happens with um, pregnant women from what I understand and like talking with friends and things, it's like, so we're taught diet, 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 like restrict. Mm -hmm. And then we get pregnant and it's like free for all. Like I'm pregnant and mm -hmm. everyone's like, eat whatever you want. Right. Well, and then your doctors are on you telling you not to do that. But like, Right. Culturally, it's acceptable to eat how, whatever you want when you're pregnant, right? Versus like other times of your life. Um, so then like, so I kind of went through this a little bit where I was like, oh, like one pregnancy, I was like obsessed with chocolate milk. And then the other one, it was like the <laughs> second pregnancy was like hollandaise sauce. I had never 
ever had eggs benedict <laughs> or hollandaise sauce but then that's <laughs> so, like i wanted to like drink it it was it was bad it was ridiculous and then the last one it was like i don't poutines from this like restaurant up the road from my house and it was like my husband was going out at silly times to go get this poutine and yeah. after postpartum it was like oh I'm not allowed to have any of that stuff right and that kind of, I felt like I needed to get back into shape and do all of these things and then I started to learn about intuitive eating and I was like you know what like I love that poutine like I'm gonna order that poutine and I'm just I'm gonna eat it and then I'm gonna enjoy it and I had it and I was like, oh, I enjoyed like the first five bites, maybe 10 bites. And then I was like, oh, like I actually really don't like this. Like I don't like how I feel mm -hmm. after. I don't like how – like I was just like taking in the experience, right? Instead of eating it in a way that it's like, oh, like I'm never I, – I don't know, out of that like restrictive mentality like we were talking about – just eating it in a way of like, I could, I could choose to have this again tomorrow if I wanted. And like, let's see, like, do I really like this as much mm -hmm. as I thought I did? And maybe it had to do with the fact that I wasn't pregnant anymore. And like, when you're craving things when you're pregnant, they seem very like satisfying when you have them. <laughs> so that could have been a part of it. But I was like, hmm, like I chose to have this. It was all right. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel really great. I probably won't choose to have this again for a little while because like, I didn't really like how I felt about it after. And there was no, like, shame. There was no beating right. myself up or any of those things, right? And I was just kind of like, yeah, but not really a fan. Like, not going to do that again anytime soon. Really different experience and different approach to food. And the moment that I tell myself, oh, I can have this thing, you have it and you're like, oh, do I even really want this? Like, is this something that, you know, I want to eat all of the time? Chances are probably <laughs> not, right? Right. Right. And it's like, I do think it's confusing. It's a confusing place to be for pregnant people when you've lived in a society your whole life that tells you you must control every bite and then have this magic wand. Like, and now you can have whatever you want and it's guilt-free and nobody will judge you and X, Y, and Z. And I do think it leads, obviously, cravings like are biologically real. Like, the, and it does, I've, read up on it. It does. Pregnancy causes things to like taste more um, intense. So it probably is more satisfying for us. But um, I also think there's something to being told we can have things that for 20, 30 years we weren't allowed to, that leads us to probably like, you know, eat way more than we actually would even want to in pregnancy. And that's like, mm -hmm. it's just a confusing, sad place that I don't think society acknowledges often yeah absolutely and then like then you've got the guilt of like then you go to your doctor's office and they're like you went up blah 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 this week and you were supposed to go up whatever and you're like <laughs> oh okay like reality right like you feel like confronted with it, like this this weight of of dealing with that again all right so as we're thinking about wrapping up here um, what would be some practical ways that we can encourage moms or some things that they can do during this really sensitive time where they're gaining weight through pregnancy or maybe they're postpartum and their body looks pretty different from before baby? Um, what might be some practical things that they can do to, to embrace this time that they're in? Yeah, I would say that, um, something really important, and this is something that I'm reminding myself to do, is to remind yourself that despite all the noise about what our bodies are supposed to look like and even like what the good pregnancy stomach looks like and then what you're supposed to do postpartum in terms of weight loss, um, your body's doing something like pretty badass when it comes to making a human, like making a human being, <laughs> creating life. So, and that's amazing right. and to try to focus on that that's kind of like the paintbrush mentality like that is what we should all be thinking about that is what we should be applauding versus like um celebs who lost weight in x amount of days um we should be applauding the miracle about like our bodies literally putting together cells and making life and um having compassion for yourself if you do you know, not like the changes that come with pregnancy and what your body looks like afterwards, because it's, it would be really difficult to expect that of yourself to like fully embrace and love all of that when 
all the messages are that we should feel really bad about it. Um, but then reminding yourself mm-hmm. of there's probably so many more important things in both pregnancy and postpartum for us to be pouring our, our limited time and energy resources into than manipulating our weight or focusing on body. So seeing if you can kind of shift um, thoughts mm-hmm. to those things when you feel like you're you know, spiraling. And I, I also think, I personally believe, I know therapy is a privilege, but um, during pregnancy and postpartum, it probably is like the best time if possible to see a therapist, a virtual therapist, if you can't leave the house, but just somebody who can support you in the feelings that you're having about your body. Because I mean, we do live in our bodies, so it does make Mm -hmm. sense that we'd want somebody who's compassionate and um, empathetic to talk about like the experience of being in our bodies and the experience of having the thoughts and the emotions and just seeing if there's someone that feels comforting when you talk to them about that. Um, I think that's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really important. Um, as you're, as you're speaking, I'm thinking about a really interesting kind of healing story in my own life and, and we can kind of use this, uh, maybe to wrap up, but I, um, my kids love to play with my tummy. It's so funny. Like it jiggles and it's got stripes on it and you know, it's like, it's the thing to do apparently. And, um, and I'm like laying in bed, tucking my one son in, I want to say like a year ago, he's like three, maybe at the time, three or four. And he's like looking at my tummy and he's like using his finger to trace the the stretch marks on my tummy and to like touch them. And he's like, what, like, what is this? Like, what are these? What are, what's on your tummy? And I'm explaining to him that there are stretch marks from when he was in my tummy and then his brother was in my tummy. And as my tummy grew, I got these stretch marks and he looked at me with like amazement, like, you know, just totally floored. <laughs> That so this is like this is because I was in your tummy and he's like okay so this one is from me this uh-huh. one is from Gabe and he starts to like claim these stretch marks on my tummy <laughs> as like proof that he was in there right like he was so ecstatic that there was proof that he lived in there at one point mm-hmm. and that has really shifted my whole perspective and and this is where seeing things through the eyes of of a child who doesn't have these influences and these, you know, like diet culture mentality and all of these things, just very curious, just exploring. And he's just in total amazement that, that there's proof on mommy's tummy that he was in there. Right. Yeah. And yeah, like so beautiful. And I've never looked at my stretch marks the same since that day. Like it was such a moment for him and I. Like it was, yeah, it was special. It was really special. That is so beautiful. And it's the, it's so like perfectly um, summarizes that idea of kind of viewing your body for the amazing instrument that it is and what it did and like being in all of that. Like that's exactly what he did. Yeah. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was really special. It was special. So, Dr. Colleen, thank you so much for being here today. I know we're trying to unpack a (laughs) massive topic, but I know that there was some really valuable um, tidbits in here for for the moms listening. And uh, I wish you luck with the rest of your, your journey, your pregnancy that you're on. And thank you for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This was so great. As always, I'm so happy and grateful that I can share this space with you. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Quick question for you. Have you joined our Facebook community yet? If you head to facebook.com slash group slash happy as a mother, you can join our private community and connect with like-minded, supportive moms. If you're looking for any of the resources that were discussed in today's episode, you can head on over to our show notes. All the links to the resources and all the contact information for our amazing guests will be there. Make sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss a single episode. And if you can't wait until the next episode to connect with me, I'll be hanging out over on Instagram at underscore happy as a mother. I'll see you right back here for the next episode. Settling is 
not an option for everything i desire is already mine what if you can have it all because every day is for the girls hello hello welcome to for the girls podcast hosted by victoria alario for the girls who want more listening to for the girls will have you ready to raise the bar stop settling for the bare minimum and start believing you can have it all and step into the 2.0 version of you. You can catch a new episode of For the Girls every Monday across all podcast platforms. Until next time, girls.